1: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. We're bringing you now a little preview of what's coming up in our next season, and there are some wonderful people we're talking to on Clear and Vivid. I especially loved our conversation with Walter Isaacson Graham.
2: He uh, has written yet another amazing book. Uh, he, he, he specializes in creative geniuses ranging from Leonardo da Vinci to uh, Steve Jobs and now Jennifer Doudna, who we've actually had on the pod about a year ago when she won the Cavali Prize for her, dis- her co-discovery of CRISPR.
1: Walter Isaacson must be half a genius himself. I, I don't know how you can write about all these people who have opened the doors to the universe for us in, in different ways. And he gets it and communicates it to us so that we can get it with a sense of excitement, not just understanding, but to really be tuned into it and want to know more. He's an extraordinary biographer. And
2: as you point out, he's a great storyteller. Uh, And you talk about that in the podcast. Um, And the the new book is no exception to that. It's called The Code Breaker. And it centers on Jennifer Doudna. And let's play a clip from the beginning of your talk with him.
3: There's a scene in my book that I find was so powerful when I heard about it from Jennifer Doudna. After she invented this technology of using CRISPR to edit our genes, she has a nightmare. And in the nightmare, somebody says, we want to introduce you to a person who wants to understand this technology. She goes into the room And the person looks up, and it's Adolf Hitler. And she recoils and has trouble sleeping after that for night after night. And that's when, and in the book I describe this, she embarks on a journey to try to figure out how do you enlist the support of people around the world to understand the technology and then figure out what are we comfortable using it to do.
1: There are so many things that are wonderful about that account that Walter gives us. First of all, the person who comes up, one of the two people who worked on coming up with this method to alter the genetic makeup of of an animal, including us, is so extraordinary. And then that person has a dream in which she realizes that deep in her unconscious, she's worried about how her own discovery can be misused. And she sets out to try to rectify that with a worldwide effort to get scientists to regard this new discovery, this new invention, with an ethical eye. And, he, and he's able to, to start that not with a dry account of the ethics involved, but with a fascinating dream story. He's such a good writer.
2: Yeah, yeah. And what makes the book especially captivating, I think, is that it, it in part, is a is a competition, because there's another group in Cambridge. Jennifer works at uh, University of California, Berkeley, and there's a group in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just around the corner from where I live, um, that was like a rival to the Berkeley group, um, led by a fellow called Feng Zhang at the Broad Institute. And uh, he talks a little bit about the rivalry in this following clip.
3: Yeah, I I do. Jennifer Doudna is the main character and she and her scientific partner, Emmanuel Charpentier in Europe, were the ones who just won the Nobel Prize, as you know, since you do a lot with uh, prizes like that, for uh, the discovery of this genetic uh, editing technology. And they were in a race against a group Uh, led by Fong Zhang at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and Eric Lander, who's just become Biden's chief scientific advisor. And they're all great people. And I spent a lot of time with Fong Zhang up in Cambridge, Mass. And, you know, he's born in China and raised in Iowa, and he has that sort of corn-fed big smile and cheeriness and earnestness that comes from a good Midwesterner. And so there's no heroes or villains in this. There's just uh, two teams racing to make this discovery that will transform our lives.: We had a really good
1: conversation with Rabbi Steve Leader. He talked about something that's so currently important to so many people in our country, which is how do you relate to people who are dying? How do you relate to people? who have had someone close to them die. And actually, it's something that's at the top of our minds right now because so many of us are tragically dying from the COVID pandemic. But it's something that every one of us has to face at some point in our life. And his wisdom is so so much in the vernacular, so much in plain words. And I really was taken by him. I thought he he was terrific when he talked about how he advises people to be themselves when they talk with someone who's on the verge of dying.
4: People call me and they say, Steve, uh, I'm going to see my best friend from college He was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's got three to six months. What do I say? And I always answer with three words followed by two words. The first three words are just show up. Just show up. Followed by be real. And what I mean by that is people who are dying or grieving, they don't need you to walk in the door with your phony, long, sad face and your whispered, Oh, Alan, I'm so sorry. It's terrible. Too. They don't need that. What they need is for you to be the same person with them in death that you were with them in life, because that's the only thing that reassures them that the bottom hasn't fallen out of the world. So if you're a joker, joke. If you're a feeder, feed. If you're a hugger, hug. If you're a handholder, hold hands. If you're a listener, listen. Be real. That is what people want and what people need. And then that leads to the whole idea of go for the laugh. I'm going to make a psychological point about humor, which I can't prove, but I firmly believe. When I am gathered with a family to talk about their loved one who has died and to prepare for the funeral, the minute I hear one of them crack a joke and everyone else laugh, I know that they have internally made the decision to survive this loss. To laugh is to affirm, right? To affirm that the world is not ending. This loss is painful. This loss is terrible, but it is survivable. And I am going to survive it. i'm going to walk through that valley of shadows. I'm not going to stay there forever and that that's why humor is so important.
2: Yes, his new book is called "The Beauty of What Remains," and it was really spurred by his reaction to the death of his father. even he's presided over over a thousand funerals as a rabbi. It's amazing, and I loved his sense of humor
1: and what did it strike a chord with you he's speaking about? Laughter at a funeral?
2: Yes, you make that point quite often, especially amongst actors at funerals.
1: I know. There's nothing funnier than an actor funeral. (laughs) It's because very often somebody impersonates the person who's gone, and that brings him back in a very vivid way, and people smile and laugh, and they recognize the point of view that the person had. And it's a way of keeping him with us for a little while longer. And and without that, you, you don't have one of the one of the advantages of getting together because of someone's death. I also loved what he when he talked about being yourself and making real contact with the other person. Showing up is not just walking in the door, but it's actually being there when you're there. And that was a perfect counterpart to our conversation with Laura Linney, a great actress, who I asked about the necessity of communicating with contact in the acting moment, to make real contact with the other person, relate to the other person. It's important. We talk about it all the time in terms of communicating. But it's actually of the essence in acting. It's very hard to act without it. And I asked Laura had she ever come across a moment where it was really difficult to relate to the other person because the other person just wouldn't be there for her. And I loved her answer.
5: I can remember I did a play once and I was working with someone and it was not going well. This person was really struggling. They were having a very hard time. If I honestly responded to what I was seeing, it would not be the play. And I tried that for a while. I tried like honestly responding to actually what I was seeing and it went way off track. I realized that I had to manhandle the narrative back into what we were doing, and I took out my contact lenses, I took them out, and I focused on the first button of this person's shirt. I never looked in their face, and I turned it into a character thing, and I just stared at the button their button, and I did everything to the button. And I examined the button and the shape and the texture of the, the fabric behind the button. <laughs> and it just became, I had a, an incomplete relationship with, with that bit of the costume that that other person was wearing. It was, it was a horrible thing to do. I felt like I was betraying the other actor and I felt it goes against everything I, I know to be true about acting. But I also knew that my first responsibility is to the story, story first, story first, story first, story first. And if you get too far away from story, you can't. An audience will get nothing out of it.
1: I love that she had a relationship with the button. <laughs> <laughs> Our next guest, in fact,
2: I think might be the next week after that, is an old friend of yours and ours, uh, Michael Turner, who is a famed cosmologist.
1: Wonderful guy. I love talking with Michael. Whenever we talk, we have such good conversations. And he's the one who invented the term dark energy for that stuff that's pushing the universe apart, pushing apart all the galaxies from one another until eventually, if there's anybody around in a galaxy, at some point they won't be able to see any other galaxies. They'll be so far away.
2: Well, yeah, so we talked about uh, our universe, which is the only universe we know. But some people... Imagine that we are only one universe amongst many universes. And you you asked him about that.
1: Yeah, I wondered how he felt about the idea of a multi-universe. And I said, "Well, well, how do you feel about the
6: multiverse? It gives me a headache. Let me tell you why it gives me a headache, is that it is simultaneously possibly the most important idea since Copernicus. And by the way, who would ever bet against the universe being bigger than we presently think it is, right? I mean, you know, that's that's a sucker bet, right? Because historically, every time we thought we knew there was everything, you know, we thought, yeah, it's all stars, stars really big, lots of stars, oops, dark matter, dark energy, hot gas. So it's simultaneously an extraordinarily important and attractive idea, but it's not testable. And the hallmark of science, the thing that distinguishes science from all the other endeavors, it's our brand. It's testability. It has to be falsifiable. If it's not falsifiable, it's not science. It's something else. And so here you're stuck with something that is such an attractive idea um, and and so important, but not testable, not falsifiable. And um, that's a tough swallow for for someone who's a scientist. I mean, it, you're going to ruin your brand. Uh, if you all of a sudden allow ideas, oh, we're going to let the multiverse in and we're going to give it full credit because yeah, you don't really have to be testable. It just has to be really cool. Here, here's my, here's how I allow myself. This gets me out of my migraine with the multiverse is that right now. The multiverse is not testable in principle, but That could change. And it's such a powerful idea. We need to keep it somewhere. We can't let it out of the room, but it can't be our flagship. You know, when when we get up and give our speeches about how great science is, let's let's lead with the COVID vaccine and not the multiverse.
2: So that's just a glimpse of, uh, what, three or four of our people in our next 11-part series of uh, clear and vivid. Some of the other people we have coming up are uh, Bill Bryson, the best-selling author, whose latest book is called The Body, A Guide for Occupants. Uh, we have a return visit from Sherry Turkle, who was on our show, what, two or three seasons ago, and has a wonderful new book, a memoir, called The Empathy Diaries, which she's uh, created during this year of living <laughs> lonelyly, as we all have been. And we have the amazing Brian May, who's not only, you know, a a core member of the band Queen, but also, would you know, an astrophysicist. And there are half a dozen others that we're coming to and you're going to be looking forward to when the season begins next week. But also next week, we're starting a new season of Science Clear and Vivid, which is going to run in parallel with Clear and Vivid. Clear and Vivid is going to be on Tuesdays. Science Clear and Vivid is on Thursdays.
1: And it's liable to confuse people. Because they have almost the same name. So we're doing our best to confuse everybody.
2: They do overlap somewhat. That's true. It's true. But our sort of our principle is that the people in Clear and Vivid are principally known as great communicators of all sorts of things, including science. Whereas the people in Science Clear and Vivid, we also think are great communicators. Otherwise, we wouldn't have chosen them. But principally, they're working scientists, they're at the bench doing stuff and we want to find out why they're doing it and how they're doing it. And we've got some great people lined up. Um, we're going to be starting with uh, a couple of young men called Omar Abadiah and Jonathan Gutenberg, who uh, were working in that same lab that Walter Isaacson was talking about a few minutes ago, the lab in Cambridge. It was a rival lab to uh, Jennifer Doudna's. And here they are. Talking about what it was like to be in that lab then that
7: summer was like one of the best summers for me in like in my life because it felt like a startup like everyone was working on different projects, people worked together, everyone had this vision of like we can really make genome editing like a thing for people and cure all genetic disease like it was just a buzz. I had the
4: exact same experience that Omar did, which is that you know when you're in really a you know, unique, like historic environment where it's, you can tell that the energy and the excitement and the creativity there is just overwhelming. You can see like the trajectories of science for like years down the line of people brainstorming. Not all of those were done in the lab. Some of them were done by other labs, but to be in a, you know, to be lucky enough to be in a movement um, right at the beginning, it's just, it's just great, you know, timing.
2: One of the interesting subplots of uh, Omar and Jonathan's story, it's a great example of the value of diversity in science. Omar's the son of Palestinian immigrants. Jonathan is Jewish. And the lab they worked in, which was run by the person Walter was talking about earlier, Feng Zhang, was born in China and grew up in the Midwest.
1: One of the things I loved about their conversation was that they talked about how they took the CRISPR idea, the CRISPR invention... And turned it into a way to diagnose disease, not just to find the problem and replace a bit of DNA, but to actually discover what the disease is. And the way they did that was that they discovered a protein that when it finds what it's looking for, cuts up everything in sight. Now, this happens in a test tube, so it's not, it's not happening in our body. It's not dangerous. But when they see it cutting things up like a blender does, they realize that they found what they're looking for.
4: That's the general principle behind CRISPR diagnostics. That this totally unexpected property of these enzymes cutting with this blender-like fashion um, allowed us to build an entire, you know, framework of detection
7: and um, diagnostics. We uh, had a lot of people start emailing us in early January um, about what was happening in China and Asia, and were wondering if CRISPR diagnostics could help. And so we started releasing CRISPR diagnostic white papers and protocols end of January, early February, um, and then spent a good part of the previous year publishing papers on how to use it with a yeah. optimized version that you could run in your own kitchen or like point of care for rapid testing. Um, and we're still, we're still working on trying to get like a small device that people could use to test themselves in any setting at home or anywhere with CRISPR Diagnostics. Yeah. So it's still, you know, it's still a very active area for us. And I mean, it's a huge field now. So many people work on it.
2: And we continue our focus on the pandemic uh, because uh, one of the main players behind the development of the Moderna vaccine is a woman called Kismikia Corbett. She was the lead scientist at the lab in the NIH that spent years working with coronaviruses long before COVID-19 erupted on the scene. And we actually talked with her just a couple of days before you were about to get your second dose of the Moderna vaccine. Here's Kismikia Corbett.
0: Some of the really cool things that we started to understand about the coronavirus spike protein really helped to fuel this Rapid vaccine development for SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 vaccine. So, the protein that you're getting when you get your second dose tomorrow, by way of the messenger mRNA, is a so-called prefusion spike protein. So, it's basically the protein that gives you the best immunity um, that you can have.
1: Now, what about you? You just got you just got a Moderna shot yourself, right?
0: Well, I had my second shot on January 25th.
1: And what was that like for you? Were thoughts rushing through your head as they plunged in the needle?
0: The first shots, I, I definitely had, um, you know, I was holding back tears. It was, again, just a surreal moment, a very full circle moment for me. You know, I have been so full of just emotion and joy this entire time as people have been getting vaccinated. Mm. I'm always very happy because it just means there's another life saved.
2: There was a, a great photo in the uh, Washington Post recently of Kazmikia, who's in her 30s and black, explaining her work to President Joe Biden and with two other 70-something white guys looking on approvingly, her bosses, Anthony Fauci, of course, and the head of the NIH, Francis Collins. And uh, Kazmikia is now working to convince vaccine doubters, particularly in the Black community, that her vaccine not only works, but it's
3: safe.
0: It was very disheartening and and almost a, um, a spiritual burden for me to have developed the vaccine and to be so proud of that moment for mankind and then to have the data come out around vaccine hesitancy. And then almost you know admittedly embarrassing that i'd been in the back of a laboratory at a federal institution doing work towards this end for the last 6 years and people that i care about the most just had no idea that that work even existed really just set with me in a way that i i felt that now was a time to really express the science to people and, and get it to people in a very digestible way i probably Naturally, have a knack for talking to you know people in black churches because I I'm a Christian and I'm I'm spiritual in practice but also in purpose. Mm. I've been getting a lot of praise for this, which to be frank, I actually find fairly odd because it's almost like you know praising a mother for feeding her child. Like I brought this thing and I I brought this thing into the world. The least I can do is is to take. And take extra care, right?
1: Extraordinary. And just to be clear, we're still talking about the new series we have called Science Clear and Vivid, which is distinguishable from Clear and Vivid, but I'm not sure how. Graham knows. Oh, well. Graham knows better <laughs> than I do. We're
2: not entirely clear how. We just have a hunch that we know what it is. <laughs> well, by and well, here's another thing, way of looking at it. By and large, there are people who are less well known. Um, in the field, there tend to be younger, up and coming scientists, not exclusively, but that's who we've sort of been focusing on. The next person we want to give you a, a, a glimpse of is, in fact, another black woman scientist, uh, even rarer than Kismika because she, her field is cosmology. She's just written a book called The Disordered Cosmos, and her specialty is whereas uh, Mike, Michael Turner, who we talked to, uh, about earlier, is a, is a specialist in dark energy. Uh, Chanda Prescott Weinstein is a her fascination is with dark matter. Here's how she talks about it.
8: So the way that I like to present this to people is that we tend to think of ourselves as normal, like we're um, what's typical of matter in the universe, but actually we're what's strange about the universe, because most of the structure in the universe, most of the matter in the universe, and most of our galaxy is actually made out of matter that's completely unlike us. Um, so that's really the, in the dark matter problem is, what is the stuff that dominates the formation of galaxies and actually makes up most of the matter in the universe? It's very counterintuitive because our intuition is that the universe is what we can see, not what we can't see, but so much of the universe is actually what we can't see.
1: And yet it makes the universe what it is.
8: Yes. I think that it's such a I think it's a powerful thing to think with when you know Carl Sagan talked about how small and insignificant and simultaneously precious we are. And I think that actually got adapted into the, into the contact film from his novel Contact. And I think that this is like another way in which we are precious, because we are what's weird. Um, we're, we're not the likely scenario. The likely scenario is a bunch of dark matter that, um, looks, that looks, and I put looks in air quotes because we can't see it, nothing like us.
2: You asked Chanda about her experience being a, a black woman in a field where she's uh, a rarity. Uh, here's the question you put to her. It was a great question.
1: I don't know if you, if you still feel this way, but I think I read, you, read your saying somewhere, racism and misogyny sucked the fun out of particle physics. Have you been able to do something about that in your head, or does it still challenge your love of your work?
8: I definitely feel challenged by it. I'm, I think that when I sit down to calculate, I am working through that. And I, I have to say that one of the things that I worry about the most as an educator now, now that I've, I've, I've made it to the level of being a professor, is how do I support students who are coping with that same experience when I haven't necessarily completely perfected my own approach to it? Um, But the negative experiences that we have because of our gender identity or um, the color of our skin or whatever um, comments people make about the texture of our hair or or, or our sexual orientation or any of those things, those things stay with you, right? And so they accumulate. Mm -hmm. And so we have to find ways to, to deal with it. I am happier now than I was when I wrote that, but I also had an incredible support system that literally held me up when I didn't think I could hold myself up and when I was ready to give up. And it shouldn't require that level of support to keep going.
2: We have some amazing women scientists in this series. Uh, in fact, most of the people we talk to in this 11-part series are Women scientists. Uh, and one of the most extraordinary is a young woman by the name of Audrey Winklesass. Uh, she was born with a crippling genetic disease called spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA. And uh, she's working now, helped by her mother, who actually can physically conduct the experiments in labs in both the NIH and in Oxford and England, looking for a cure for SMA. Here's Audrey Winkle-Sass
7: when I'm in the lab I don't really think about the fact that I have sma I mean I mean on the one hand of course it affects every part of my life so of course I know that I have it but you know when I'm doing my science I'm just thinking about the science so I I really like working at the bench I really like wet lab work because you know you can test you can take material from cells run it on a blot and see things that normally you would never be able to see with the naked eye, right? So you can see the expression of a particular protein mm. um, and how much of that protein is in your sample. And so really being able to look at these things, which are so tiny and, like, and, and so difficult to imagine, but, but seeing them appear in front of you is really, really exciting to me.
1: Is is there ever a moment where you have to check yourself out and not, not be biased toward a, a direction you're taking because you want it to be true? Do you have more of a worry about fooling yourself than somebody who doesn't have the same disease that they're working on?
7: You know, I've I've been asked that before, um, and I guess a couple of answers to that. On the one hand, I. Don't see that much difference between my situation and between someone who, let's say, works on cancer research because their mother had cancer, mm. or someone who, um, you know, does diabetes research because their brother has diabetes. Um, I think in all these cases, again, it's it's really the personal experience is what provides the motivation. But I think when we're in the lab, you know, looking at our data at least me i i think if anything i i might be extra critical right because i want to make sure that what i'm seeing is is real is true
1: fabulous fabulous young woman she really is and it it's it's hard to talk about her or think about her as a scientist without uh, referencing the fact that she suffers from this debilitating disease but we don't have her on the show and the conversation doesn't focus on her as a scientist who does extraordinary work. Even though she has this disease, it, she does extraordinary work, period. You can't help but talk about the other aspect of her life, but it shouldn't ever diminish her her value and she's purely as a scientist.
2: That's right. She's, uh, in, the, in the episode, she describes in some detail exactly what she's doing. She's actually using messenger RNA to try to spur into action a sort of backup gene that we all have that doesn't work very well most of us. Uh, But the main gene that causes the SMA condition, which is damaged, she's using messenger RNA to spur into action this alternate gene to provide the crucial protein that's missing. Very cool stuff, yeah. Yeah. So others we got lined up for at Science Clear and Vivid, including a couple of people who are studying different ways we communicate verbally. Um, a young woman called Ev Fedorenko, who's scanning people's brains to uh, look for where and how we process language. Her lab's at the McGovern Institute here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then Eddie Chang, who is probing brains. He can literally probe the surface of a brain while somebody's awake and find out how, how thoughts are turned into spoken words. Uh, And in fact, maybe even by monitoring the brain activity, hear a version of what somebody's saying, even though they're only thinking about it. Amazing stuff.
1: It really is. If you're interested in science at all, if you're interested in the wonders of nature that you might not have heard about yet, don't miss the series called Science Clear and Vivid. It's, It's all about the exciting people, many of them surprisingly young, who are coming up with a view of nature that we've never had before and that will change our lives. And don't forget Clear and Vivid, where we talk to, talk to people about communicating in every aspect of our lives.
2: So there you go. You found an explanation for the two different series. You did. Well done. Very good.
1: <laughs> I'm, so, I'm personally going to listen.
2: <laughs> well, both series start next week. On Tuesday, it's uh, Walter Isaacson talking about uh, Jennifer Doudna and the hunt for CRISPR. And on uh, Thursday, it's those two young men in the lab that were also doing the same thing in competition. It's a great show. They're all great shows. Please tune in, if that's what you say, for listening to podcasts, starting next week. Bye-bye.
1: We're happy to say that the new season of Clear and Vivid, as well as Science Clear and Vivid, will be presented by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity.